good to see all of you here today. Good to be here for the second part of our two-part message, The Race. Let's begin this morning by reviewing where we came from. Some of you weren't here last week. Some of you had very good reasons for that. Some of you had really weeny reasons for that, but we, <laughs> well, we, we won't go into that. Some of you actually maybe slept through last week's sermon. Some others of you have just slept since last week's sermon and thus have forgotten some of the things that were spoken. So picture in your mind as we begin, as a reminder, the race we had on stage last week. You remember Hanya and Matthew were on stage. And I guess, uh, okay, there we go. Hanya and Matthew are on stage and I asked them to race one another across the stage. And Hanya, unbeknownst to her, actually enhanced the sermon illustration that I was using before later almost ruining it. When I told her she was going to race, do you remember? She immediately took off her shoes. I didn't tell her to do that. Not too many women's dress shoes are very good for running fast in. So she immediately, without me even suggesting, put it aside and put aside that hindrance to her race. But first, before I said go... I wrapped a rope around uh, Matthew's legs and I handed him a big rock to carry in each hand. And then after unknowingly enhancing the illustration, Hanya almost blew it by showing mercy to Matthew in the race and not giving it her best and she barely crossed the finish line ahead of Matthew, though he was entangled in the rope and carrying the weight. You remember that? Well, if she'd lost the race, it could have kind of ruined the point I was trying to make. Anyway, as I told them then and I remind you of now, the race illustration at the opening last week did actually have a point. And as we begin to examine the text for last week's and this week's message, we saw the point more clearly. At least that was my hope. I hope you began to see that a little more clearly. So let's review the primary text for this morning's message and last week's message as we begin to look at the race, part two. It's from Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So for a refresher for all of us, let's recall some of the key points from last week before we move into some new things. We learned that the important transition word, therefore, that's here in verse 1, referred clearly to the previous chapter of Hebrews. Hebrews 11 is the faith chapter, and it also names many individual heroes of the faith. It commends them for their faith. And as we begin chapter 12 with verse 1, we learn that these heroes of the faith are that great cloud of witnesses that we read of. Not so much that they're watching us as we run our race of the Christian life, but more in the sense that their very lives speak of the faith that they have in God, as well as God's faithfulness to them in fulfilling His promises. They witness to us not as mere spectators, but as proclaimers and testifiers of God's faithfulness. They are examples to us of faith. They're not just examples of everyday faith, but faith in the midst of 
incredibly challenging and difficult circumstances. The cloud of witnesses is a model to us. They are presented to us as people that we can emulate. We learned, too, that the rate here referred to is just life. It's just the Christian life. It's our life in Christ, our ongoing daily walk with Him through thick and thin. And it's not a sprint, but it's a marathon. And we're admonished to do certain things in this passage of Scripture to enable us to run this race. First of all, we're called to lay aside every weight. That means anything that can hinder us, anything that can hold us back, that can weigh us down, that can keep us from running effectively, like the rocks that I handed Matthew or the shoes that Hanya took off. We noted that these aren't necessarily bad things. They're not necessarily sin because sin is mentioned next in this passage of Scripture and it's mentioned separately. So these weights might even be good things such as money or possessions or relationships even or hobbies or sports. Not bad in and of themselves, but they can be the kinds of things that hold us back from fully running our race. And then we saw the horrifying illustration of the sin that easily entangles. Remember the fly that lands on the sundew plant? It's attracted to the sweetness. It's supposed to be attracted to the sweetness. Oh boy. Don't you just love technology? There we go. Okay. It's attracted to the sweetness on the plant and it lands there to get to that. But as soon as it lands, these tentacles entrap it. And though the dew still tastes sweet, and though the fly still keeps on feasting on the sweetness even as it tries to escape, it's trapped. And eventually, what happens? The plant literally sucks the life out of that fly. And such is sin that easily entangles us. Then we saw the reason we are to lay aside every weight and to put off the sin that so easily entangles us. The reason is we're to run. We're to run our race. And not just to run, but the idea is to keep on running. It's not a race that we finish in this lifetime. It's a lifelong race. So because of that, because it's a lifelong race, it takes endurance. And this is the first of three separate uses we see of this word endurance in this short three verses of Scripture. So it must be important, I think. In fact, it's vital. We could have titled these two sermons The Race of Endurance. That would have been an appropriate title as well. Endurance here has to do with circumstances. And we must assume that they are difficult circumstances. They were difficult for the heroes of the faith, that cloud of witnesses that's referenced, both named and unnamed, in chapter 11. We read, for example, near the end of chapter 11, that some of these named and some of the unnamed endured by faith things like torture and jeers and flogging and chains and prison and being sawed in two and put to death by the sword. So persecution and mistreatment require endurance. You know, we don't talk about endurance in relation to easy things, do we? Like a good steak or a piece of apple pie. We don't endure those things. We just enjoy them. Or a great sermon. We don't endure that. We just enjoy it, right? <laughs> the very word endurance implies difficulty. So we're encouraged to run our race with endurance or with perseverance. And though we mentioned this idea last week, endurance is connected with hope. We read this 
in 1 Thessalonians. And boy, we're, I guess we're ahead of the game here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now why do we see in this passage steadfastness, another word for endurance, connected with hope? I think at least one reason we see this in 1 Thessalonians 1, 3 is because it's easier to endure when we have hope about the ultimate outcome of our race or the end of our race, isn't it? I mean, if we have hope for what that ending is going to look like, it's easier to endure. So we see this clear connection between hope and endurance. That's a key point, so more about that in a moment. And here's where we left off last week. We left off fixing our eyes on Jesus. And when I read this verse, I always think of the chorus that you see on the screen there, turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So we've been encouraged to first look to this cloud of witnesses referenced. But now we're encouraged actually to look away from them and then to look to Jesus, to look to his holy life, to look to his endurance under trial, to look to his absolute trust in the plan that was set in place before time began, that was worked out between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It was a plan that included Jesus, who was already the Word from the beginning, but then He stepped into time and He became the Word made flesh. It was a plan that him included of Him living a sinless life. It was a plan that included His suffering, His death, and then His resurrection. So the phrase translated fixing our eyes on or looking to Jesus is from the old verb, which means to look away or to looking away to Jesus or looking from afar. It means to look away steadfastly or intently toward a distant object. Metaphorically, it means to behold in the mind, to fix the mind upon. The idea is that now we fix our eyes on Jesus after a glance at the cloud of witnesses. Why? Why do we fix our eyes on Jesus? Because He is the ultimate goal. Jesus is the ultimate goal. He's the ultimate model. He's the ultimate example. He is also the end of our race. And let's remember something else that we noticed last week when we were looking at this passage of Scripture. So much of the book of Hebrews is about better. It's about something better compared even to things that may have been good in and of themselves that served a clear purpose, a good purpose, like the old covenant, like these great heroes of the faith or cloud of witnesses. In fact, we remember that the last two verses of chapter 11, which are clearly in view because of that key transition word that we noted a moment ago, therefore, they tell us this in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 39 and 40. And all these, and again that refers to all the named and unnamed heroes in this chapter, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. So now after seeing the encouragement to remember this cloud of witnesses, to remember their lives, to remember how they ran their individual races, to see them as models of faith that we can emulate in some ways, to remember their faith. Next we see this next admonition, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Why? 
Why do we fix our eyes on Jesus? Because He is the something better. He is the something better. Yes, these heroes of the faith were true heroes, true faith models, and they were commended as such. Remember what it said in verse 38 of chapter 11. It said that the world was not worthy of them. Still, now we are to turn our attention away from these heroes to something better. And that something better is Jesus. Jesus, He's our ultimate model. He's our ultimate example. In fact, He stands at the end of our race, so He's also the goal. He's the finish line. On the cross, Jesus told the repentant thief that on that day, the thief would be with Jesus Himself in paradise. The end of His race was Jesus. Paul said that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So when our race in this life ends, when we cross the finish line, there's Jesus. There's Jesus. And you know what? That's better, folks. That's better than anything we can imagine. Jesus is a better model. And He beckons us toward a better promise. He beckons us toward a better place at the end of our race. Now there's a good sermon title too, huh? That would have made a good sermon title. A better place at the end of our race. Think about that. Made possible by a better covenant. So fixing our eyes on Jesus is one of the things that enables us to run this life of faith. This race of life. Fixing our eyes on Jesus is one of the things that enables us to endure. There are several reasons for this. Perhaps the most important one is the empowerment of the Holy Spirit living inside us as believers in Christ. What a wonderful gift. If that wasn't true, none of us, none of us could live a life of faith. We could not even hope to run this race with endurance apart from the indwelling Holy Spirit. But the immediate context of this passage also illustrates why we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. He's the author or founder of and the perfecter of our faith. One scholar says that Jesus is the pioneer of personal faith. He blazed the trail, so to speak, for us. He also perfected the way of faith since He reached its end successfully. So through His atoning work on the cross, Christ's perfection leads to the perfection of His people. We'll see this on the last day. Think about this. We'll see this on the last day when we too will be made perfect. Free not only from the physical constraints of this frail body that we walk in today, but more importantly and more amazingly, we will be free from sin. We will be free from sin, which in this life we still have to consciously, by His grace, lay aside or put off. We read about this word, author or founder, the word author or founder, um, and it carries the meaning originator, founder, leader, chief, first, prince, as distinguished from simply being the cause. This may mean that Jesus is the one who initiates and completes faith in the souls of men. However, it may be best to understand this as uh, objectively referring to what is believed. In the context, faith is treated as a way of life. The author summons a cloud of witnesses whose lives testify to the reward of the life of faith. Jesus stands as the chief witness, for it was He who blazed the trail and gave us the ideal model of the faith. This is why the author urges his readers to fix their sights on Jesus.
Meanwhile, the word perfecter means Jesus finished His race perfectly. So He's our model. Again, He's the better, the best example. Better even than the people of faith mentioned in Hebrews 11. Our Lord here is very emphatically set in a place by Himself apart from all that cloud of witnesses who in their measure are held forth as noble examples of faith. All these, the greatest names of old, are in one class, and He, Jesus, stands above them in a class of which He is the only member. Our eyes may profitably dwell on these other examples of faith, but we have to look higher to Jesus. It's also interesting to note that these designations for Jesus, author, perfecter, founder, are used elsewhere in the New Testament, but they're translated a little bit differently. Perhaps a quick look at a few of these passages will enhance our understanding maybe a little bit. In Acts 3.15, for example, Jesus is referred to as the author of life, or in some translations, he's referred to as the prince of life. And then earlier in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 2.10, we read that Jesus is the founder of our salvation. It says, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The King James Version of this verse says that Jesus is the captain of our salvation. So while these heroes of the faith may be mentioned as part of the great army of faith, Jesus is clearly our leader. He's the founder. He's the author. He's the captain of faith. More so, this passage tells us that Jesus is also the finisher, or He is the perfecter of faith. In His own life, He finished perfectly. Again, quoting the Scottish preacher Alexander McLaren, it says, He is more than example. He gives us power to copy His fair pattern. What we want is not the knowledge of what we ought to be, but the will and the power to be it. And that we get from Christ and from Him alone. He stretches out His hand to hold us up in our poor struggles. His grace and His peace come into our hearts. Looking to Him, His Spirit enters our spirits, and we live, yet not we, but Christ liveth in us. So let us look away from all others who can only give us example to Him who can give us strength. By His Spirit in us as believers in Him. He gives us grace for increasing faith in our life. We have to remember this, folks. We have to remember this reality. Faith is a gift. Faith is a gift. Contrary to what some TV preachers may tell you, faith isn't something that you can work up. Yes, it can be developed, but it's developed by Him. It's developed by His grace, not by our effort. Our faith is in Him. It's not in ourselves. So if we say we want more faith, we don't do something to build it up other than access His already given means of grace. Things like prayer. We pray, don't we? We read the Word. We fellowship with the saints. Those are the means of grace that God has given us to grow in Him and to build our faith and allow God to do things in our lives that build our faith. Now this may seem like semantics, but remember how we looked at this same theme last week in the context of putting off sin. Is this something we do, or is it something that God does? The answer is, we do, but God does it in us. As, as it is with sin, so it is with faith. We remember this passage of Scripture from Philippians 2. Therefore, my beloved, 
as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God works in us, but he works in our will too, folks. He works in our will and he works to work for his good pleasure. And this is true of putting off sin and it's true with building faith. Next, we see that not only is Jesus the author or founder and perfecter of our faith, but we see that just as we must run the race with endurance, so Jesus also endured. Again, this is meant to be an example, folks. This is meant to be a model, a better model, a better example of endurance. And his example of something that helped him endure is also ours. This is an amazing thing to think about, too. What helped him? The joy set before him. The joy set before him. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Now, I don't think it's very hard for us to at least begin to understand why the cross took endurance. Anybody struggle with that idea? Probably not. I don't think we can understand perfectly. Most of us know just enough about crucifixion to know that it isn't something that anybody will experience like a walk in the park. A key difference is that Jesus went willingly to the cross for a reason. He wasn't some criminal who was justly executed for a crime he committed. He wasn't even someone who got up, caught up in something that the Romans didn't like, and thus he was dragged to the cross unjustly. Jesus went willingly to the cross by God's perfect plan, and he endured for a reason. He endured for the joy set before him. Jesus' cross means something way different than anyone else ever suffered when they were killed on a cross. And there were a lot of people in history who were crucified and who were killed on a cross, justly or unjustly. But Jesus represents the greatest suffering in history because he suffered not only physically, but he experienced God's just wrath as Jesus took on himself all the sins of the world. Yet he did this, why? For the joy set before him. The joy of sitting down at the right hand of God the Father. The joy of accomplishing the eternal plan of salvation. The joy of sitting on his throne and knowing that all these things were ahead. Knowing that as hard and painful as his season of suffering was, he endured. He endured for the joy that was set before him. The sentiment here is imitate the example of the great author of our religion. He, in view of the honor and joy set before him, endured the most severe sufferings to which the human frame can be subjected and the form of death which is regarded as the most shameful. So amidst all the severe trials to which you are exposed on account of religion, patiently endure all for the glorious rewards, the happiness, and the triumph of heaven are before you. So here's the amazing thing. Jesus did this for the joy set before him, but Jesus' joy is our joy, folks. His joy is also, in a very real sense, the joy that is set before us, too, as his followers. Because we are in Christ, right? If we are in Christ, that means we are one with him. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. 
behold, the new has come. We read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, so that in the coming ages, he might show, God might show, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Not only did Jesus endure, but he also despised the shame. That means he thought nothing of it. He dismissed it with contempt. The cross, folks, was an instrument of shame. It was a shameful, embarrassing death to experience. It was publicly humiliating. Yet we read here that Jesus, by his actions, thought nothing of it. In fact, he totally dismissed it. That's an amazing thing to ponder as well. Finally, we're encouraged again to consider Jesus. First, we're told to fix our eyes on him. Now we're told to consider him and to consider specifically the opposition or hostility that he faced. So again, we see this idea of endurance. We, hanging in there, persevering, fighting through obstacles. In this case, the opposition that he faced from sinful men. Let's think of that for a moment in the context of our culture today. Here's the headline in this past Wednesday's newspaper. Same-sex couples continue to file into county courthouse day after historic ruling. One of the two articles under this headline spoke of those churches in Tulsa that were lining up to perform same-sex weddings. So there are many ways that we must persevere and we must endure. We are to consider Jesus who endured opposition. Other translations say hostility from sinful men. Actually, hostility is a little stronger than opposition, isn't it? And in this case, it's probably a better translation of the word here. It includes the idea of controversy and strife and reproach. Anyone seeing that in our culture today? Maybe we haven't experienced it yet personally, but we may. The day may come. And how are we to respond? How are we to respond? Well, there may be more to our response than this passage of Scripture talks about. And we've learned and will learn more in our Sunday night seminar about some ideas about how we're to respond to these cultural issues of our day. However, in the context of this passage of Scripture that we've been looking at last week and this week, one of our clear responses is that we are to endure. We are to endure. And we are also not to grow weary and lose heart. Again, we see that athletic analogy. We talked about how common that is last week. The phrase grow weary and lose heart was often used in the ancient world to describe the runner who collapsed exhausted from the race. So how do we avoid a spiritual collapse? Well, here's what this passage of Scripture says. We consider Jesus. We fix our eyes on Jesus. We consider the hostility that Jesus faced from sinners like Caiaphas, like Herod, Pilate, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees. He faced them with courage. He faced them with confidence in his mission. He faced them with faith in the plan that he developed in cooperation with God the Father before time began. He also faced them, let's think about this for a moment, he didn't return their hostility. He didn't strike back. Remember that Jesus' responses to opposition and hostility were, with only a few exceptions, were fairly matter-of-fact, weren't they? He faced this opposition with strength and faith and even with love and forgiveness. Even suffering on the cross, what did Jesus cry out? Father, forgive them. So as we come to the end of these very full three verses of Scripture, 
we can't, we must not, miss the overarching message of this particular passage of Scripture. We are to be totally absorbed with Jesus. He is to fill our skies like the morning sunrise. He is to be our high noon and our sunset. We are to fix our eyes on Him. We are to consider Him. Right? So we see that this idea of perseverance, this idea of endurance captured in these verses gives us some very clear commands. First, we must divest. We must throw off every sin, especially those sins that capture us, like that sundew plant that we saw in the brief video a moment ago. We have to lay aside every weight, and that may include even things that might be good in and of themselves. But there are things, folks, there are things that will hinder your race. They will hinder my race. There are things that weigh us down and hold us back from running well. And to run our race with endurance, we must lay them aside. Are we willing? We have to ask ourselves this. Are we willing to do some radical divesting? Radical divesting of things that might otherwise even be good, but slow us down and hold us back from the things of God. Second, this passage of Scripture says we must run. We must run the race that God has marked out for us. That means you. That means the race He's marked out for you, not the person who's sitting next to you. God has marked out a race for you, and it is your race to run and not mine. We must run, and we must not compare our race to someone else's race. Our races are different, folks. And you might look around and say, well, that person has a much easier race than mine. Or that person clearly has a harder race than mine. That's not the idea. We're supposed to run the race that's set out before us. And we must run with endurance. We must run with perseverance. Third, this passage of Scripture tells us we have to focus. We cannot be distracted from Christ. He has, Jesus has to cover the sky. He must be our center. We must focus on His focus because His joy is our joy. His joy set before us will give us the strength. It will give us the grace to endure. It will give us the grace not to be concerned about those who hate us. Finally, we are to consider Him. We are to consider. That means we need to think about. We need to ponder. We need to meditate on how He lived. We need to consider how He died. We need to consider how He ran His race completely divested of every hindrance. Laying aside even good things that we can only imagine, like His throne in heaven. None of us have to lay aside a throne in heaven to come to earth, do we? Knowing that the joy set before Him included a future on that throne. And our joy set before us includes something better too. A better place at the end of our race. It includes an eternity set before us. A joyful, amazing life with Christ. So let that promise always be before us. Let that promise always be clearly in view. Let that better life move us. Let that better life motivate us. Let that better life drive us and help us endure. Amen? Since we spent so much time last week emphasizing the importance of therefore in this passage at the beginning of Hebrews 12, I want to close with a few key verses from this previous chapter. And as we read, I want you to remember this. 
This is the joy set before us. This is the reason we can endure by God's grace. Referring to some of these heroes of the faith, I've got to tell you, when I, when I was figuring out how to close this morning's message and I picked this passage of Scripture, it honestly brought tears to my eyes. So think about that. Think about what, we're, what is our joy set before us. We read this in Hebrews chapter 11, beginning with verse 13. These, again referring to these great heroes of the faith, all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this encouragement, this admonishment in this passage of Scripture to run our race. We thank you, Father, for the admonishment to divest ourselves of everything that would hold us back, everything that would slow us down, everything that would weigh us down from our walk with you, Lord. We thank you, Father God. We thank you, Father, for the encouragement to run, to run our race, the race that you've given us and not the race you've given to somebody else. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the encouragement to focus our eyes, to fix our eyes on Jesus. Father, to turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. We thank you for this encouragement. We thank you for the encouragement, Father, from your word to consider Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured. Father, help us to endure. Some of us have challenging things to endure that are in our life even today. But Lord, we thank you that by your grace we can and we will endure. We thank you, Father, that the joy set before Jesus is the joy that is set before us. And that, Lord, we have something better to look forward to than this life, than this race that we run now. Father, help us to focus on these things and remember these things as we seek you, as we seek to walk with you wholeheartedly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.